Psalm 149. Some of you have very confused looks on your faces. It'll make sense in just a second. Uh, we are flipping our format today uh, for what I think is a good reason. So if you have a kid kindergarten and down, and you would like for them to be a part of more age-appropriate Bible study this morning, uh, that is available for you. Uh, if you would rather have them in here, that's great too. We love having kids in the room. I cry and moan and laugh on my own, and so having kids do it is also okay. Uh, but if you want them to be in a more age-appropriate Bible study, that's available. And so now is your opportunity, like right now. Go out those doors around the corner real fast uh, and check them in, and they'll come back in here later because uh, we're going to sing later. Um, but if you don't... Uh, if you aren't putting kids in, in our children's space, uh, Psalm 149. And if you're the type that likes to bookmark uh, the other places that we will be, you can also put a finger in Exodus 15 and Ephesians chapter 5. All right? So Psalm 149, Exodus 15, Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we are going to have the text up on our screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, uh, one that's kind of just your copy. Uh, we like giving Bibles away around here. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, defined by knowing him, evaluated through the lens of knowing him. And so uh, we believe that the scriptures are what he uses to get you to that point. And so uh, we want to put Bibles in your hands if you don't have a copy of your own. Uh, if you're a visitor today, welcome to the chaos that is Nashville Baptist Church. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, and so if I have not met you personally yet, uh, I would love to have that honor before you duck out of here today. Um, but so this is going to be a little different than what we normally do. Uh, normally we sing for a while, then I stand up here and talk for a while. Uh, but uh, we're flipping things around this morning uh, based on what we would typically do on a Sunday. Uh, but I promise it'll make more and more sense as we go along. Um, so we kicked off a brand new series a couple of weeks ago, sermon series a couple of weeks ago, and we're leaning into our inner child for the next couple of months simply by asking the why question. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And we're, and we're taking that why question and we're applying it to all of the things we would typically do, normally do in a Sunday morning church gathering, a Sunday morning church service, all right? And so those of you with little kids right now, uh, you probably understand that phase pretty well. Or, or maybe it wasn't that long ago that you had kids in that phase in your house. Uh, that, that's the world that I'm living in at the moment. Uh, we've got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. I get the why question a ton, all right? And so I, 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 I kind of like the why question because I'm a type of person that really enjoys uh, uh, thinking things through. But honestly, there's a lot of times I kind of hate the why question because for some, some days, it's the, it's the thousandth time I've been asked that question in the last 25, 30 minutes. All right? Do y'all remember that phase? I, like, it, I don't have fond memories of that phase yet. I'm kind of living that phase and it's not very fun. All right? But so sometimes the, the why question hits you as an annoyance, but then there's then there are these other times, right? There are these other times, especially if you're the type of person that likes to seriously think through how the world works. There's these other times that the why question kind of lights you up, catches you off guard, causes you to slow down and think carefully about why you do something or why you do something in a specific way. And then once you've actually put some some effort into thinking that thing through, that, that reason for doing so ends up being so incredibly obvious, so incredibly smart and intuitive that you couldn't imagine approaching that thing in any other way from now on. 
Of course that's how it works. How else would it be? What else would the answer be? And I really think that a lot of the things that we do in a typical weekly gathering, the, the, the weekly rhythms of the gathered church, I really think that a lot of the things that are in that category are in the, I never thought about it, but now that I have, yeah, it's obvious category. I think a lot of those things fall into that category. And so, and so we, we started out a couple of weeks ago gently but, but critically picking apart some of those things that we've always just kind of assumed, right? And we started out two weeks ago by, by asking the but why question over gathering itself. Like, like as in, it's getting together in one room with all of God's people actually something important? Or is it just some kind of pleasant side project that we can do when it's easy and convenient to pull off, right? Like, is that something that's actually important for us? Or is that just something we, we kind of do once in a while because we think it'll be beneficial for some things? And we discovered uh, that the regular weekly gathering of the saints is not just something a church does, it's something a church is. It's not just something a church does, it's something a church is. It is a fundamental reality of who we are as a people, and that God uses that gathering to grow us, and he uses that gathering to work powerfully through us, and he uses that gathering to give us more and more of himself, but then also he uses that gathering to, to expand his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are an outpost of the King. While there may be short seasons that the gathering of the saints cannot happen, while there may be important reasons to, to consider shutting it down for a brief period of time, the threshold for making that decision is incredibly high. Gathering is not something we do. Gathering is something we are. And then last week, we took that same but why question when it comes to the proclaiming of God's word, right? Like, like I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed the trend here, but... We, we, we read a lot of Scripture. We spend a lot of time explaining Scripture here. We make a big old deal out of preaching, even, even the stuff that might be culturally advantageous to avoid. Like why, do we do, why do we do that? Is that merely because we're trying to be you know, faithful representatives of an otherworldly king? Well, certainly not less than that. We certainly do want to be faithful representatives of God and his kingdom. But at the same time, it's also way, way more than that. We saw that we are to faithfully proclaim God, God's word precisely because it is his word that creates us as his people. But not just creates, we also saw that, it, that it's his word that sustains us as his people. He... His proclaimed word is the diet that he has intended for us to be fed upon and to live upon. But then finally last week, we also saw that his word is, is, is the thing that secures us as his people. When, when the rest of the world would rather chase after and embrace the myth. While others chase after whatever might suit their passions in a given moment, while they, they're thrown about by every wind of doctrine, to use Paul's words in another place, we cling to a word that's been promised to endure forever and never fail us. God's people are created by his word, they're sustained by his word, and we are ultimately secured by his word. So now that we've given that but why treatment to a couple of things, what's our next target? I think probably, obviously, you put the pieces together. We need to talk about what the source of our mixing things up this morning. Uh, I think we need to ask, why, why do we sing? Why, why do we sing? 
Like, that's, that's kind of a weird thing to do. You, you ever done that at Walmart? <laughs> if you did, it'd probably, probably make the news. <laughs> like, you ever done that? You ever, you ever done that at the park? Or at the tire shop? Why, why do we sing? And I don't know, may, maybe, just as an idea, maybe we ought to discover why we sing before, just spitballing here, before we spend our time singing this morning. Would that be beneficial? Does that, does that sound like a smart thing to do? I thought it was a smart thing to do. I think it's a smart thing to do. Let's do that. So, if, if what we learned last week regarding the proclamation of God's word is true, if, uh, then that means that, that, that building our time in such a way that it leads up to the primacy of the proclaimed word, the sermon. Right? So we, we want to structure our time in such a way that that, that, that is the mountaintop of our experience together, right? If, if what we discovered last week about God's word being the thing that we feast upon, uh, the, the thing that creates us, sustains us, and secures us, then it's good and wise to, to put that at the, at the top of our, our mountain, if we want to call it that, right? We want to make that the grandest gesture of proclamation, uh, and we want to put it on the biggest pedestal that we've got. But unfortunately, at least it's been in my experience, unfortunately, what sometimes gets unintentionally communicated in that structure, in that posture, is that everything else we do as a church is just kind of second tier and unimportant. And, you know, it just kind of sets the stage for that preaching. Well, there are some churches that out there that don't hold the scriptures in a high enough regard, and it causes them, I think, to, to downplay God's declared word. It causes them to, to focus the, the majority of their time and their attention on things like music and aesthetics and other things like that. Churches in our stream of theology often fail the other direction. We often fail the other direction by seeing all the other stuff as some kind of second-class event. And so as long as we're getting the, the, the proclamation piece right, all that other stuff doesn't really matter. All that other stuff is less important and, and could maybe, I'm not saying I want it, but I'd live if it just didn't exist at all. Right? Just give me God's word. That's all I need. I, I have some friends, guys I call friends, who, who couldn't care less if their church had music at all. They're really passionate about God's word being proclaimed. And if, if all they did was stand up there and preach for an hour and a half, they'd be in a happy place. Is that a good thing to do? I mean, if God's word is the most important thing, shouldn't we feast wholly on the most important thing? And then on top of that, you got the fact that there are a lot of people in churches all over the place who, just, who would never say that singing is unimportant, but they just don't participate in it, right? For some, it's honestly because they just don't like to, and you can't make them, <laughs> right? For others, maybe it's because they feel like they can't sing very well, and they're trying to love their neighbor right, by not singing around them. <laughs> Got some folks in that category. So if, if it's not the most important thing we do on a Sunday morning, and if there are lots of people who are dispassionate about it at best. And if even the ones who do think it's important still uh, shy away from it because uh, it's difficult for them or, or awkward for them, then, then a massive question emerges, right? Why do we spend time singing? Why do we do that? 
Why do we devote so much time and energy and kingdom resources even to, to, to this action? Well, it's going to shock you, but I think I got some reasons. I think there are actually three very clear reasons that we can point to in the Bible. Three, three reasons that, that hopefully will forever shape the way we approach doing music at our church. Forever shape the way we approach singing here. And to see the first one, we've got to look at Psalm uh, 149. Psalm 149. The psalmist says this, starting in verse 1. They say, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. All right, let's call a time out there. Okay, so the psalmist says several things here that, that kind of in passing uh, still end up giving us incredibly important implicit instructions for, for how we do things. I don't know if you caught them. All right, for one, the psalmist says sing a new song. Sing a new song. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we kind of enjoy the old stuff around here. Like, like some people don't think we enjoy it enough, right? But there's a lot of churches you can go to that you'll never hear the old stuff. We kind of like it. We really like the old stuff around here, but we also like some of the new stuff too, right? We, we often lean on older hymns in our time together, and, and the very obvious answer for, for that is because they are a treasury of truth that we get to celebrate and declare. There's a giant treasure chest, the hymns are, of godly wisdom and the exaltation of our good God. And so we dig into that treasure chest as often as possible because it's, it's a store of riches for us. But digging into that treasure chest is not all we've been called to. We're also called to be creative. And so we don't forsake the old stuff. We love the old stuff, but the clear call is to also be creative in our praise. We're called to constantly be expanding the width of our worship. Does that mean that just anything goes? Not at all. Creativity is never an end in of itself. We are to chase after God with a God-influenced creativity and with a God-focused creativity. So there are ways of using creativity that honor the Lord, and there are very obviously ways that, uh, that, uh, that we can try to use creativity that will be distracting to the glory of the Lord. And we want to make sure we navigate between those two accordingly. Another implicit thing that we learn here are the instruments involved, right? Did you, did you see what they were? A tambourine and a lyre. Anybody who's got a strong opinion about what instruments are and are not appropriate in, in, in a church service, they need to deal with the fact that strings and percussive instruments are the ones that are actually explicitly mentioned, and things like pianos and organs are nowhere to be found. I'm just saying, it's what's in the text. Does that mean that some instruments are, are right and godly to use and others are not? No, I don't think that's what that means at all. It, it goes back to that Godward creativity, right? We get to try new things for his glory. But if you want to split hairs about it, and some people like to split hairs about it, when it comes to the Bible, 
we see the strumming of strings and we see the banging of stuff. It's our Christ-given freedom to be creative that opens the door for us to use those newfangled instruments like pianos and organs. We will gladly, gladly use those instruments from time to time because, because we get to. We get to. And we love that we get to. And if we can use them in a way that gives glory to God, then, then, then that's something that we get to say yes to and we want to say yes to. So we see the singing of new songs. We see some instruments involved. There's a third implicit thing that the psalmist mentions, dancing, which, let's be honest, is hard for Southern Baptists to hear. <laughs> dancing. What do we do with that? Well, I think it should be noted that you know, dancing in a lot of cultures has grown increasingly more and more attention-seeking and increasingly more and more sexually suggestive. But that's not true in every culture. And that's not true of every dance in every culture, and so there's definitely a right way and a wrong way to approach dancing, just like with instruments, just like with new music. But it's there. We can't ignore it. But here's the deal. For all the implicit things that we can learn from Psalm 149, there's, there's something here that's not implicit at all. It's, in fact, it's incredibly explicit. And we see it in verse 1. What was it? Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Both the phrases praise the Lord and sing to the Lord, those are commands. Those aren't implicit instruction. In the Hebrew, they're imperatives. Do this. Do this. It's, it's non-negotiable. Meaning, these are not suggestions offered to God's people. These are expectations placed upon God's people. And so the very first thing that we need to see, the very first reason that we can point to this morning for why we sing when we gather together is the simple fact that our God has commanded it of us. He tells us to sing. He commands us to sing. So can I be the practical pastor for a second? Can I go ahead and say out loud what shouldn't honestly have to be said out loud? But here we are. A refusal to sing with the gathered church is ultimately an act of disobedience to our God. That's what it is. There ain't no, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm not feeling it today. You're being disobedient. The psalmist doesn't carve out an exception for those who aren't in the mood. He doesn't carve out an exception for those who lack the talent and you know, need to sit this one out because we're going for a certain feel and a certain you know, quality here. The command is for the assembly to sing. God's people are a singing people, firstly, because our God expects his people to be a singing people. But there's really... I think, fair theological question that arises out of that, right? Like, why, why would God command us to sing? Why would he command such a thing? Is it because he really wants a show? Is, is he, he going to be entertained by this? Kind of like American Idol when you watch it for the people who don't audition well? Is that, what, is that the kind of thing he's going for here? Is this some kind of pride thing for him? Is it because he said so and he gets to make those rules? Why would he command us to sing? Well, that leads us to our next reason. So flip back to Exodus chapter 15. 
Exodus chapter 15. Let me set the stage for the story. Uh, Israel has fled from Egypt. All right? uh, they, uh, they have uh, watched God, witnessed God uh, deal the ten plagues. All right, on the Egyptian empire, completely tear them apart. All right, he, uh, uh, they, they plunder their, uh, their Egyptian uh, hosts, I guess if you want to call them, on their way out the door. Uh, and then on their way into the wilderness, they are led by a giant pillar of fire slash cloud, whatever that looks like. All right? Nobody, though, is going, huh, that's cute. It inspires awe. It leads them through the wilderness. They get to the edge of the Red Sea and they discover, they discover that this mighty Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, has changed his mind and he wants his slaves back. And so he starts bearing down on them with his giant chariot army, pride of the empire. Everybody's impressed with the chariots that Egypt has. And he's racing down on them and they're cornered at the edge of the Red Sea. And so what's, what's going to happen? Well, the Israelites, they think they're going to die. They think they're going to die. It doesn't matter that the entire reason that they've made it this far into the story is because God's hand put them there. Miraculous event after miraculous event, can't explain it event after can't explain it event. God has brought them to this point. It doesn't matter that the entire reason that they are in this moment right now is because God brought them there. They apparently have an incredibly short memory of God's faithfulness, and so now they think the end is near. Right? And what does God do? Not so much. Splits the Red Sea in two, and they walk through on dry ground. Tiny thing. He holds back Pharaoh and his chariots with said pillar of fire cloud. And as soon as the Israelites are safely on the other side, what does he do? God turns Pharaoh loose, lets them race after them into the seabed, where God promptly covers this mighty chariot army with the waters, drowning them all. What a cute little children's bedtime story. <laughs> Ain't it sweet? All right, so here's the question. If you're Israel, and you're standing on the other bank, and you're watching all this play out, you've watched God's hand move you up to the edge of the sea, through the sea, and now safely on the other side as the ones who were trying to destroy you are now forever gone. If you're Israel standing on the other bank, what is your next move? What do you do in that moment? How do you respond to, to, to such a, a spectacle? Well, we see that response in Exodus chapter 15. Verse 1 says this, then Moses and the people of Israel, what's that word? Sang this song to the Lord. Let's call time out there. So after watching the most amazing and miraculous moment to ever be witnessed, 
right? They got to see this play out with their very own eyes. They watch it happen. They think they're goners. Then God provides and God protects and God deals with the problem. After watching one of the most amazing and miraculous moments to ever be witnessed, after watching God do this and do that, Moses doesn't go intellectual. He doesn't open a bottle of wine and make a toast. Seems like a good thing to do. He doesn't make an impromptu speech that galvanizes the troops. He doesn't duck away by himself to to ponder on these deep realities for a while. What does he do? Moses leads them to sing. He leads them to sing. And what do they sing? Verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. What a picture. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This song, man, I don't, I don't know if you watched it play out, but it kind of bounces around all over the place. One moment, it's, Celebrating this great thing that God has done. And then, without even pausing to take a breath, it's celebrating the greatness of who God is. And then it's back to celebrating the greatness of what God has done. And then it's back to celebrating the greatness of who God is. And then it's back to celebrating the greatness of what God has done. And then back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It can't seem to focus on one or the other. And man, I think that tells us something incredibly important about what's going on in their hearts in this moment. See, some of Our worship is sober-minded and careful. Some is rightly planned out and scheduled. But then there's also this piece of our worship that I think needs to be 
an involuntary response to being left undone by a God who is unfathomably good to us. Being left undone by the, by the one that we can't even begin to put complete words to. I think we need to have moments where the only way we can think of responding is to explode with praise. I think that's important. We find ourselves in a place where where every direction we turn, we are more undone than the last moment. Look who he is. Oh man, look at what he's done. And we turn around and we turn around and we turn around and and that hole keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. We, and we don't even know how to respond. It just comes out of us. If we find ourselves in that moment, man, I think we're in a good place. I think we're in a really good place. I think a healthy understanding of worship, or we can use Jesus' own words, uh, worship that is done in spirit and truth. I think a healthy understanding of worship involves both the slow, contemplative side of us and the explosive, reactionary side of us. I think God has designed us to experience both of those things. And again, the question is, why? Why is that a necessary piece of what it means to worship God? I think it's because, I think it's because music can do something that mere words can't do. And the singing of music, even over and above that, can do something that mere words cannot do. I think we all instinctively know that to be true. Everybody's got a favorite song, right? And whether it's whether it's the, a turn of phrase or it's a, a special thing that a specific instrument does that just kind of draws your heart in. Everybody's got a favorite song, and, and it's because it pricks something in you and stirs something in you that's very deep down inside of you, right? Something that, to see that very same song just written out on a piece of paper and laid on a counter doesn't stir in you. Same words, same sheet music. It's the internalization of that song that changes you, right? God has created his people to be deeply moved by music. Deeply moved by singing, to experience it, to participate in it, to be changed by it. Hear me, God does not command singing from us merely because He's God and He gets to make the rules. He commands singing from us because He wants a depth of good for us that can only be achieved through music. He wants us to connect with Him at a level far deeper than what human words have the capacity to pull off. He's aiming for something bigger and deeper and truer than a speech. Does that take some discipline sometimes to, on our part to pursue those deep moments? Yeah, it does. Does that, there are times when maybe you, you don't want to go chasing after that depth? Yeah, I'll be honest about that, sure. Sure. But just like hearing that one certain song at the end of a terrible day, man, music seems to have this 
unmatched ability, this unique ability to pull you out of the hole. Right? And, and listen, don't you know that you finally crossed over that line when you start to sing along? Something's been unlocked in you when you finally give in. God commands his people to sing even when they're not feeling it, even when they're not so good at it because we ultimately need it. We need it. We're shaped by it. Especially in the moments. Especially in the moments when we don't even realize it yet. He's working in us before we're aware that he's working in us. So that follows that refusing to sing is not merely an act of disobedience. I'll just say it as honestly as I can. It's also an act of stupidity. Why? Because you're refusing good medicine. You're holding at arm's length the good gift that God has given you for your healing. Nah, I don't want that. I ain't feeling it today. I refuse to drink it. just a bad call. There's coming a day when the primacy of proclaiming God's word will come to an end. And that'll be a really good day. Be a really good day. Why? Because we will no longer need the proclaiming of God's word because God will be here. We'll be with him and he will be our God and we will be with him forever. Preaching will one day end. Praying will one day end. Missions will one day end. But hear me, church, worship will not end. The singing of praises to our God is an eternal reality. An eternal reality. There are cultures that exist that don't have reading and writing. There are cultures that exist that don't have this and that. There are cultures that exist that don't have this other thing that we value. There's not a culture on the planet that doesn't have music. I think maybe God's doing something big there. I think he's working something in us, creating by design in us for an eternal future. So to cut yourself off from God's good gift is a really bad call. And ultimately, it's, I think it's disrespectful to both the gift and the giver of that gift. But then we can also drill another layer down into this this morning. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Uh, we studied it several years ago together as a church family, um, uh, but some of y'all, I think, probably weren't here for that. Uh, if you're newer to our church family, Ephesians is pretty much a shorter version of Romans. All right, so if you want a kind of overarching, quick read, uh, a, you know, summary of that, Ephesians is kind of a shorter Romans. Uh, in chapter 5, Paul tells them in verse 1 to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. All right? And then he goes on for the next chapter and a half to, to spell out some incredibly practical ways that God's people will actually model that same kind of others-focused sacrificial service that Jesus first showed us. All right? So he spells out, this is how you model it in 
this capacity, this is how you model that sacrificial service. In this capacity, you want to look like Jesus, and you're in this situation, this is how you do that. That's a chapter and a half of five and into chapter six. And then Paul goes on uh, to, to spell out those kind of things. He, he talks about submission to uh, that God is designed to exist between wives and husbands. And he talks about uh, the submission that's designed to exist between uh, uh, masters and their, their servants and between children and their parents. But, but in chapter 5, verse 15, Paul squares his sights on the gathered church. And he says this in verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, look at verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so Paul's definitely got more in his sights here than just singing. All right? That's clear and obvious. But for our purposes today, we need to pay very careful attention to the fact that singing is mentioned here. Why does that matter? Because Paul sees congregational singing as one of the ways that we fulfill our responsibility to walk in love as God has first loved us. Paul puts singing with the gathered church in the category of love your brother and sister in Christ well. Gathering together as the church body and singing, Paul says in verse 19, addressing one another, it is one of the ways one of the ways that we imitate the selfless, sacrificial service of the Son. Not the only way, but it is one of the ways. So how does that work? Because when we gather in one room and we sing together, in that moment we are pulling each other into a deeper reality of God's glory. We're pulling each other in. And we encourage one another, and we're spurring one another onward, and we're testifying to the goodness of our God and what he has done through all of us as we stand shoulder to shoulder with one another. If we were to each in here kind of corner ourselves off and sit down and try to write out a list of the times in a gathering, the times in in worship that, that kind of most affected us and most changed us. If we were to kind of create our, our own top 10 list, if you want to call it that, or top five list, whatever it is. If we were to sit down and try to list out the times in worship that most forever changed us and affected us, every single person in this room, Every single person in this room would come back with one or two items on their list where the, the music kind of faded low and the, and the worship leader stepped back away from the microphone and just let the congregation sing. Why would that be on everybody's list? Why, why do we think that that would be such a, a massive moment for everybody. I think this is because there's something tangibly 
special about God's people singing with one collective voice. There's something tangibly special about that. And we, we can think through some practicals here. Like, when you hear that moment, don't you lean in. Don't you sing with just a little more oomph in that moment? There's something special about that moment. When, when we participate in worship as one body with many members, we do something in that moment that no singular person in the group could ever pull off on their own. It doesn't matter how talented that one person might be. This ain't a performance. That's not what we're doing in that moment. It's a collective testimony of the goodness and the greatness and the salvation that belongs alone to our God. It is God's blood-bought family unifying themselves to celebrate who he is and what he has done. Listen, through the gift he has chosen to give. And he has designed that gift in such a special way that it is bigger and more special when the body shares in that gift together. The collective praise of God's people through song is far, far more than just the sum of its parts. It's not a matter of addition. The entire church participates in singing. Far more is happening in that moment than just a louder collective volume. When we sing, we worship the God who is worthy of our praise. But listen, we also build up the body. We do both. Oh yeah, and we also build up the faith of individuals within the body. Don't you lean in? And we get to look a little bit more like Jesus by modeling his others-focused love. And we testify to a world that doesn't know God yet how great our God is. Which means much is lost when the entire church is not participating in singing. Not just a decrease in volume. We lose, we lose the unity. And so a refusal to sing is not just an act of disobedience and it's not just an act of stupidity. It's also an act of great, great selfishness. The body is experiencing less of God's good gift than it should because one part of the body is going, nah, I ain't feeling it. Can't make me. We need you to sing. Not, not because you're good at it. You're probably terrible at it. But we're chasing after something eternal here. We need you to sing. Don't worry, we won't hand you a microphone. But we need you to sing. God has clearly gifted some parts of the body with the ability to, to lead these things. The, but the leadership and participation are not the same thing. God has raised up leaders, yes. He's gifted good gifts to leaders, yes. But the whole body, the entire body is called to participate. 
We sing because we're commanded to. We sing because God uses it to draw us deeper into himself. And we sing with our church family because by it, we sacrificially encourage one another in the Lord. So what do we do with this? All right? What do we do with this? How, how can we respond to, to God's word this morning? It's pretty easy, right? We're about to sing. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we, listen, we, we take what we've learned and we celebrate the one who is worthy of such an effort. We sing and celebrate who he is and what he has done. We strum strings, we bang drums, we sing the old stuff, and we get creative and try some new stuff too. All for God's glory. We lean in to God's good gift. Yes, enjoying the gift, but even more than that, enjoying him through the gift that he has given. We sing. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. I really am. Listen, though, I, I think you could respond to God's word too, but it's not by singing a little stronger. You respond to God's word this morning by meeting Jesus, the one that's worthy to sing to. Listen, we, we don't sing about special themes in our world that we think are pretty and lovely, and we don't sing to serenade some unrequited lover hoping that, that maybe they'll return our affections. No, 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 we sing to God because God is good and because he has made himself known. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and came to rescue us. That's worthy of a song. He came to rescue us. We sing to and for and even by the one who laid his own life down to purchase us for himself. Who paid the debt for the sin that we owe by dying on the cross in our place and rising again from the dead that, so that we might be with our king and lover forever. So your response this morning is not to sing with a hearty spirit. Your response is to repent of your sin and call on Jesus to save you. To follow him as Savior and Lord and that, oh, I promise, will change the way you sing forever. It's a good day to do that. In a second, I'm going to pray, and we're going to get busy singing. Normally, I'm down front here to talk to people who want help walking through and making sense of what that response of faith looks like. i got to go bang on some stuff. You can talk to me after we're done. I'd love to be helpful to you. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 149, and thank you for the example in Exodus 15, and thank you for broadening our understanding of what we're doing in Ephesians 5. I'll confess, I often approach our time of singing as a platform that all the really important stuff comes after and sets upon. You've designed me to need this. You've commanded this of me and you've created it in such a way that it's 
the right and appropriate response in, in most moments. And by your goodness and grace and by your wisdom, you've also created this to be something that, that strengthens our church and builds us up and encourages the ones that would never make it up onto the stage. Help us to see singing as you see it. Strip away all of our bravado and all of our concerns about what my people might think. And simply enjoy the good gift that you've seen fit to give. Thank you for the beautiful gift that is music. Use it now to, to draw our hearts closer to you and closer to each other. Let us sing well this morning. Not in our ability and talent, but because you're the God who deserves it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.